millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. We take a look tonight at some of the discussions around criteria for trans people in sports. Is it really an issue of concern here in Ireland? It's a case of who knew what and when as questions are raised about whether government knew the extent of notices to quit ahead of their decision to lift the eviction ban. Finland joined NATO this week and Hodesha Michal Martin is putting forward plans for a public forum on foreign policy. Is Ireland's neutrality getting a rethink? And later, could Good Friday become a new public holiday? You join First tonight, the Ladies Gaelic Football Association, the LGFA, have said they in the sport, having approved a policy allowing individuals to make an application to a newly set up committee, which will allow transgender women to play ladies football unless there is a case of unacceptable risk. This decision, however, has been met with pushback by some. Well, joining me to discuss this in more detail is political correspondent for the journal.ie, Christina Finn. Fina Foyle MEP, Billy Kelleher, broadcaster Rebecca de Havilland, and psychotherapist and public speaker Stella O'Malley. And I am also joined on Skype this evening by Sarka Nick Lachlan from the Countess Sports Working Group, who say their mission is to protect the interests of women and children of Ireland. You're all very welcome to the programme. Rebecca, I'm going to start with you. Did you play sport, first and foremost, as a, as a child? Not really. I, the only sport I did play would have been um, tennis and uh, swimming would have been a sport of mine too as well. And probably in my later teens, I played bad, badminton. And then after you transitioned, did you continue to partake in sport? No, not at all. I think maybe because I kind of finished school when I was about 15 or 16 anyway and went into hairdressing. So, I, no, I didn't really go into sport. Now, my brother would have been a big sports person, but not me, no. Would you be comfortable now joining a sports team, a ladies' sports team? I would, yes, because I think there's a lot of controversy going on at the moment. But I think also, like, I mean, I look at myself, when I say tennis and I think of... Vanessa Williams, is it? You know, like, I mean, she's a big Venus girl. Williams. Yeah, like, she's a big girl. Like, I mean, she'd probably knock the socks off me in a game. You know what I mean? Strength-wise and every-wise. So I think it's all relative, really, as well. Is there extra scrutiny, do you think, on the role of trans people and the place of trans people in sport at the moment? Yeah, I think there is. And I think, it, like, I mean, I, I was actually in London this morning because I was working in London, and I was listening to Sky Sky this morning at seven o'clock and how the, the British are kind of trying to stop now um, trans females, you know, playing in any sport. Or even further than that, they wanted like, try and stop us using female toilets, using all of this. And I just think, where is this going? You know, I mean, where am I supposed to go to the loo? I'm fully trans, you know, transitioned. You know, it's kind of scary. And I felt it actually this morning. Then when I was queuing up in the loos, like at Heathrow Airport, I just, for the first time in over 30 years, I kind of, anyone that was looking at me was kind of thinking, 
why are you using these toys? And of course, that was my own paranoia, but that's where this has taken us. What, do you, you know? feel more uncomfortable now in 2023 yeah. than you would have 20, 30 years absolutely, ago? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I never had any trouble. I never had anything said to me going into a lady's toilets or whatever. You know, I mean, where would you, why, why should, why would I go into a man's toilets? You know, it's just, it's degrading. It's hugely degrading. You know, I've known since I was a child, before we'd any television or any social media or anything. I was born in 1958 and I knew from the age of three that I wanted to be a girl. Do you know what I mean? That I should have been a girl, you know? And My heart think... is a girl. My soul is a girl. You know, why should I be victimised because of who I am? Do you feel that there's any sport that you shouldn't be allowed to partake in? No, I don't think there's any sport. I think it should all be relative. Relative in, to in, what? In the sense of, I just feel that, um, you know, like people think, oh, because that you were something beforehand, you know, that there was something, it was proven, I can't, I don't know the exact thing, but it was actually proven medically that the, that it shouldn't be stopped, you know, being a trans person. Because I think especially when, what people forget is when you start taking hormones, when you start taking hormone replacement therapy, it like before you even have any operations, it kind of um, dulls all the testosterone in you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I it think what you're talking about is that Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport, isn't it? Yes. All right. As it stands, Billy, in Ireland, individual sporting bodies, they can make policy in this area. And we've seen that with the LGFA and with the IRFU who've taken a different position. Yeah, I think it's not settled in society. My view would be that uh, trans people, you know, should not be victimised. They should not be picked out as a cohort for some cultural strong or larger cultural debate around conservatism versus liberalism. I think it's a very, very difficult area uh, from that perspective. And I just think that we want to be very conscious of that. We're talking about people at the end of the day who have gone through a difficult journey in many, t in, in many uh, circumstances. So the idea that we would make this the cultural war in terms of conservatism versus liberalism is a very worrying aspect. And it seems to be gathering momentum across the globe in, fair, in general, and I, I worry about that. In terms of sport itself, I mean, if a person is a woman, then they should be entitled to be in female sports. Okay, uh, if I just they want transition to look... But what some people are saying is that there's more signs required about when the, when the transitioning started pre-puberty versus post-puberty. These particular issues are being debated among sporting organisations. But in general, I think we are really getting fixated on something that doesn't happen very often in terms of uh, advantage being conferred on somebody because they may have transitioned later in life. I just think that we'd want to be, you know, keep things in perspective, being truthful. But I mean, the organisations make individual choices I just think that, you know, collectively as a society at some stage and as parliament, uh, as a people, we have to land somewhere on this as well eventually. I like to land on the side of giving people, uh, you know, the entitlement to be who they are. OK, I just want to um, look at the Irish Rugby Football Union, the IRFU. <coughs> they banned trans women from participating in contact rugby. They cited peer review research. It showed that there were physical differences between people whose sex was assigned as male and those female at birth. Do you, do you respect their reasoning there, the decision that they've made? Well, you see, once you go into that particular area, I mean, you know, are, are you then going to start weighing people playing sport, you know, contact sports? Are you going to have different um, weight divisions for rugby tackling, uh, etc.? So, like, you know, you could have a transgendered person who is a lot lighter than a person who didn't transgender, okay. and yet they're making tackles in rugby. So, 
you know, we have to we have to look at all of this in and, and keep it in a rational debate in, in general. Would be my view. All right, let me go to uh, Sorka. Uh, Sorka, your organisation has expressed concerns about the policy that the LGFA are promoting. Why? What are your concerns? Um, well, if you're talking specifically about the LGFA policy, they've used a very old. Um, outdated metric of based purely on testosterone, which isn't shown to have really significantly reduce any male advantage. And the male advantage in sport actually starts to be measurable between girls and boys at about age nine, and then is accelerated by male puberty. So um, by the time a male has been through puberty, he has significantly uh, bigger advantages over females. And uh, just to go to Billy's point, even at the same weight, so if you took somebody who has the same weight uh, a male versus a female, the male would still have stronger bones, uh, different muscle mass, bigger lungs, bigger heart, uh, bigger hands, bigger feet. They would be stronger and faster and they would be at risk of causing an injury to a, a lighter female player, even at the same height. So um, I would say that we have to follow the science on these kind of things. And it isn't really about culture wars. It's about protecting women and girls right to single sex sports, to fair competition in sport. It's not really about banning participation. I would say the male category just needs maybe some robust inclusion guidelines so that males feel welcome in their sport, that uh, somebody who is a transgender person is welcome in the sport of their sex, that they don't feel excluded by that sport. But, okay, but ultimately, Rebecca, women and girls... All right, but just as Rebecca said there, Rebecca is a woman. She has transitioned a long time ago. Yeah. Her soul is a woman. Her heart yeah. is a woman. She has absolutely no interest mm. in playing with a male team. And why should mm. she? Well, why should women and girls I just want to, to cut in on something that you just said there. I mean, you were talking about size of feet. I have a size six foot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're talking about bones and all of that, that were bigger bones. Yeah. I don't have big bones and I certainly don't have big feet. Do you know what no. I mean? So I think that I think it, you're generalizing here a lot too. Well, it is a general thing though, because sport is a general is based on general categories. We can't you can't screen everybody. There are categories there. There are weight categories in boxing, there are Paralympic categories and there are sex categories. And so yes, you might have a smaller frame than somebody else, but we can't make a policy based on that and specifically around the LGFA policy you know I think it's really telling that this policy didn't mention any female who identifies as male in the policy either and that's a major oversight because okay but this, this is sorry to, but this is the this is the Ladies Gaelic so Football Association. Um, you yeah. say there, I mean, there is, a, there is a, a panel, there's a panel set up of legal and medical experts. There's four people on this panel. It's not an automatic right for a person who has transitioned to female to play. They have to make an application. As you mentioned, there are testosterone um, samples that they will have to submit. And the board itself will look at other issues and decide then if there is an unacceptable risk, unacceptable risk. Is that not pr protection or do you just not believe the validity of this board? Well, they've used a metric that has, is from 2015 and has been proven to not actually screen for any male advantage. So not really, no. Um, the policy doesn't outline what other things the, the, the risk assessment takes into consideration. It doesn't mention how often the person's eligibility is reviewed. For example, you could have a young person who is accepted under the policy one year and then goes through puberty, maybe comes back at 15 or 16 and suddenly they're not allowed in anymore. And I think that's awfully 
unfair on that young person. So I don't really think this policy is fit for purpose, no. Um, I just want to go to um, the rest of my panel here, to you, um, Christina. We've had you know, the Gender Recognition Act in this country since 2015. It's almost eight years old. Uh, that gives you the right to self-declaration. And yet, as Billy said, we do seem to be discussing trans rights in this country more than ever. What are you putting that down to? Yeah, it's interesting because just like any other piece of legislation that's made its way through the haze of, of the Oireachtas that give rights and regulations to a whole cohort of people, the Gender Recognition Act did just that in 2015. It was debated, it was discussed and it was legislated for. And I look back over that debate actually um, on, on the transcripts and it was, it was widely um, discussed and quite eloquently put by a lot of TDs within the House pointing out a lot of issues, um, you know, about how this was an education issue. Uh, I think Helen McEntee said at the time, Patrick O'Donoghue gave a, a really passionate speech about how he had met a father um, of a child that had been transitioning mm -hmm. and how this piece of legislation um, would mean so much to a small cohort of people. Because actually, if you look back at the 2021 um, statistics or the, the figures, over just over 100 people actually applied for a gender recognition certificate. So we're having a huge debate, I think, uh, at the moment mm -hmm. about issues that were, were dealt with in legislation over eight years ago that have largely been going on for a, a number of years yeah. without any sort of discussion. And, yet, and it is for a minority of people that, that we are discussing here tonight. It is a small group of people out of five million people that we're discussing um, in terms of their rights to, yeah. to live, essentially. And yet, Christina, we saw the Wexford TD, Paul Keogh, say that he had received more queries and more emails about transgender issues than housing and the eviction moratorium and the ending of that, which we've seen dominating the news agenda for weeks now. Now, he said that he felt it was part of an organised campaign, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, there, there is concern, I think, among um, TDs, Billy probably testified to that, that there is concern that, it, you know, it, it's easy, I suppose, to send an email into a TD. And, you know, there have been campaigns in the past for a whole range of issues um, that people are campaigning on. So is this another one? Who knows? There are, there is no doubt that there is a lot more of a discussion happening in the UK, the US, and is that seeping into, That's, I suppose, yeah. mainstream media here in Ireland, given that we did legislate for this in 2015. And I think, you know, Leo Varadkar was asked about it recently. And, um, you know, he, he spoke about having sensitivity to this discussion, yeah. um, you know, to, to, you know, respect the discussion and, and to, to think about, I suppose, yes, he said, this is new to a lot of people, even to himself, he said, but it's also new perhaps to parents that have a child that has gone through this, a very, very difficult thing to go through and schools that are having to manage that and, and children and friends. So yes, per, perhaps this is, it's healthy enough to debate and discuss this and how we're going to deal with it. But I think there has to be sensitivity and the person at, needs to be at the centre of that. Yeah, and yet I have to be honest, Stella, when I was researching this discussion, this conversation all day today, I was struck, I have to say, by a lot of the language that was being used by those who were raising concerns. And, and we heard that from Sorka a minute ago about protecting children, protecting girls, safety, threat. What is the merit for using that language? Is that not scaremongering people? Um, I don't know if what, what language you're talking about specifically there. I do know that for, for thousands of years, women have always worried about the protection of children. So if women are grouping together 
to worry about the protection of children. That's nothing new. OK, what is the worry, I'm asking? Oh, I'll tell you what the worry is. When um, somebody transitions at an early age, they are going to carry a very heavy medical burden on their body. And it might lead, well, it will lead to infertility if they transition at an early age. And it would also lead to sexual dysfunction. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm saying it's very definitely something that should be discussed and women have every right to discuss it. And so to kind of dismiss it as scaremongering, when you talk about, for example, Leo Varadkar, who did speak in a very, I thought, in a very, very kind of well, carefully chosen words, but he also mentioned the fact that there are some very small cohorts in society. For example, there's female prisoners, and they are a tiny minority. They're among the most vulnerable people in society, and they need protection just as everybody else does. And there's another tiny cohort in society. But who, sorry, who yeah. again, just want to go back to who do they need to be protected from and why? No, not at all from you. Not at all. I want to be very clear. Not yeah. at all from Rebecca. But, I don't but think But Rebecca so. is a person who has transgender... She is, but so that's who, not who's who the threat Oh, from? the three sex offenders that are in female prisons right now, in Limerick Female Prison, that's who they need to be protected for. And they already are, because they're on a different wing. But if mm. you look at Paddy O'Gorman's, or listen to Paddy O'Gorman's podcast, they're, they're shouting down to the women in the, the female prison, okay. in Limerick Prison, today. So there's, we have to, when we have to acknowledge there's a conflict of rights, when you've got female prisons who are subjected to one thing, and other people are saying we have to worry about these people's rights, we have to worry about everybody's rights. Rebecca, everybody matters here. How do you feel hearing that? Look, everybody matters here. Everybody's concerns and rights must be taken into account and the prisoner situation there being an example. I agree, like, I, I agree with the whole child thing that you're talking about, you know what I mean? And I work in, in, in TransPlus in London and I work here in, in Dublin as well. And you know what, the one thing, I don't know any, any doctor that I deal with that does not look at, like, look at kind of helping trans people until they're over the age of 18 you know, to start them on hormones and stuff like that. That doesn't happen. You know, if that happens, it happens by some 16-year-old being able to get hold of hormones. You know what I mean? It, it's All I know is, the way I can answer this best of all is, you know, I, I've known since I was three, and I just feel, you know, like I was born in 1958, I didn't have these opportunities. If I'd, know, if I'd known at 16 or 17 that I could have done that, it would have changed my life. It would have changed a lot of things. I might have even gotten to finish school. Yeah, and just, I mean? I'm just conscious, I wonder, Stella, when we're having this conversation, are we forgetting, as Christina said, and as Billy has said, and the teacher has said, that, that we talk in the abstract about risk and danger and we don't take into account what that must feel like to be told that you are seen as a threat to a woman. Oh, it must feel awful, but when you have sex offenders with the females okay, in the prison... Okay, moving I'm not just talking about that specific, because the discussion tonight was about whether or not transgender women should okay, be able to play could, in could sports. I, could I take up on that? There's another tiny cohort that we should worry about. We should worry about everybody's feelings equally. And I'm delighted to be having this conversation. I'm delighted Rebecca's here. And I think everything you've said, I think we've agreed on everything, actually, until now, and I hope we continue to agree. But where I would worry about a tiny cohort would be elite female athletes like Kelly Harrington, like Katie mm. Taylor, like Sonia O'Sullivan, who, who fought very hard to get into the position that they fought. And if you put up a person of the very same weight and the very same uh, size, height, as Kelly Harrington, and it was a male body, somebody who'd gone through male body, they will have more force, 
their muscles will have more mass, they'll have more bulk, the more strength, and this is scientifically proven. Mm. Okay. It is, there's been 49 studies that have it actually, okay. the science is in World, World Rugby have said it, IRFU, the very heavy contact sports, like boxing and IRFU. And when you look at Fallon Fox, who was an MMA fighter, and she was a trans woman, and she fought a, a, a biological woman, for want of a better phrase, and she broke her skull. And when she broke her skull, the, the female okay. said, I've never felt a force like it. So we have to worry about everybody. It's a conflict of rights. And so it's great we're having the discussion. It, and it, I there hope is, we can there maintain is, there civility. Is, I suppose there is that other study, the Canadian um, Centre for Ethics and Sports, which says trans women have no advantages in sports. So there is a counter study to the studies that you've To the 49 there. studies I'm I just, have. I'm just so conscious, um, Billy, when we're discussing this, is this about women's sport, do you think, or and the protection of women, or is it sometimes used as a foil to have a bigger discussion about people's fears around trans rights? Yeah, look, I, I'd say a lot of people don't understand us being truthful, uh, in my, in my, is my opinion. I mean, they're a very small group of people, uh, very, a lot of vulnerability. It's a very intimate decision. You know, it's not something that's often discussed openly. Uh, Rebecca has. She, you know, she campaigns and speaks confidently about it. Uh, she also outlines her challenges through life. And I just think that it is beginning to become a cultural war on this mm. issue. I actually do. Yeah. And uh, like, so we talk about prisons. Every every prisoner is assessed for risk by to themselves yeah. and to the inmates they're with. So regardless of gender, if there's a risk, there's a risk, and they shouldn't be with others, regardless of. The, the, the gender or whether they're trans, yeah. a risk is a risk. Yeah, I wonder, just to go back to you, Sarka, what Billy says, that there's a fear here that this is more about stoking up uh, a culture war. You're, you're from the Countess, this organisation that says it's representing the rights uh, of women. Does the Countess, as an organisation, have a difficulty with trans people? Uh, no. Um, we have difficulty with the legislation in, the, in this area and with um, the conflation of gender identity and uh, sex as well. Um, and in particular in sport, it's very obvious where there, that there's a, a, a direct conflict between the, the, the rights of women and girls to have fair competition, safe competition, safe space, uh, you know, same-sex spaces and stuff, and the, the, the rights, or I suppose, if you want to put it that way, the rights of transgender people um, as well. And so just, it's brilliant to be having... Uh, but I don't think it's a culture war. It's, I'm just it's very, because I went on, very fundamental. Uh, I went on to the Countess's Twitter page before we came on air this evening and I looked at some of the comments on the Twitter page and some of the comments that you have retweeted. The Countess group has retweeted on Twitter. Being trans is a reaction to a mental illness which leads to drug dependence and mutilation. That's one of the comments retweeted on your page. Retweeted gender self-identification is an utterly barbaric practice. I mean, that would suggest to me that this is not just about concerns for young girls playing sports. It's a wider issue that you have with trans people. I mean... <laughs> you don't deny that those if, tweets if being, are on your Twitter we're page. Told, we're being told, on the one hand, that gender dysphoria is real and requires treatment in clinics and by psychologists and psych psychotherapists requires hormone treatment. So for us to say that it uh, is concerning that that happens to young women. It's not you, you, You're being fair. told this, but you don't know for a fact. That's pure ignorance on your part, because you're saying you're told. Who's telling you this? 
Joe, my fear the is that, that Ireland, the only thing I love about my country is that we have come right up in so many ways around gender, LGBT stuff, you know, and what's happening, just as this lady said as well, what's happening is we're getting on the back of what's happening in the UK and USA. Can we not do something on our own, on our own without having to monkey back on somebody else? Like, let the, you, what mean, you're the talking about is pure, 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 pure crap. Sorry. Yeah. We're, uh, we're a very small country in a large world. We do yeah. need to use international evidence oh. to support whatever we do for medical treatment right. or uh, sport or anything. You okay. know, we can't just, just say, oh, I feel like this. That's not how okay. policy should All be right. developed. You're really having a go at us, and it's nothing to do with sport, in my eyes. It's a I'm witch hunt. All right. Um, I'm just wondering, Christina, briefly, is this issue coming up on the doorsteps for politicians the way it definitely is in the UK, the US and Scotland at the minute? Although perhaps not to the extent as you would think from some of the coverage, actually. No, from people that I spoke to day in, day in Leinster House, the majority of people are facing issues on housing and health. That The number, they're the top two issues that TDs are facing. Yes, there might be emails coming through to, to TDs and that was mentioned at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting. Um, they, they are looking to have a wider discussion on it, but, you know, housing is the number one issue in this All country. Right. All right, and we're going to be speaking about that in a lot more detail after the break. My thanks to Rebecca, to Sella and to Sork for joining me this evening. Christina and Billy are staying with me. Next is Ireland's neutrality set to change and the latest on whether the government were aware of the scale of notices to quit ahead of their decision to lift the eviction ban. Stay with us. Well, the controversy surrounding the government's decision to lift the eviction ban rumbled on for weeks, and today there were more questions for the Taoiseach. It was all around the Residential Tenancies Board figures on notices to quit and when the government knew the exact figures. Well, today the Taoiseach said the government did not have those exact figures, but that the same decision to lift the moratorium would have been reached regardless. I said we didn't have any, any exact figures and we didn't have preliminary figures either, but we knew two things. Uh, one, that there was definitely going to be an increase in the numbers of notices to quit, um, precisely because we knew that was going to be an effect of the legislation that we passed, so we knew there was going to be a big increase uh, in the numbers of notices to quit. I think this is being missed by a lot of people. Um, we passed a law which required landlords to tell the RTB as well as the tenant about evictions and there were certain other changes, so it was absolutely expected, inevitable, um, that there would be an increase in, number, in, in no squit, and we knew that. 
Uh, Christina Finn and Billy Kelleher are still with me and I'm also joined by Harry Brown, Senior Lecturer at Technological University Dublin. Harry, you're very welcome to the programme. Uh, Christina, I'm going to start with you. One of the big, mm. I suppose, criticisms around the government's decision to lift the moratorium on the evictions was that no modelling had been done, that they didn't know just how many people were going to be facing notices to quit. And this sort of suggests that they did have a much better idea than they indicated than they first sort of let on. Yeah, well, I think the concerning thing for most people at home is that when a decision of this magnitude is made to lift an eviction ban that's going to affect thousands and thousands of people, they expect it to be an informed decision. And having statements, I suppose, from the Taoiseach saying, look, we didn't have the full data or, you know, the housing officials didn't pass up that data to, to Cabinet or even to the, the coalition leaders who met the night before that Cabinet meeting, um, you know, it, it does really, I think, beg us belief to a lot of people that they expect when people are sitting around a table making such decisions that they have every single piece of data that they need to make that, that decision that's going to impact so many people. So and what did they know or do we actually know what the RTB had really told them? Yeah, look, like I think we knew that when they made the decision for the winter eviction ban was that there was, I think, close to 3,000 notices to quit had been uh, registered with the RTB, which is the reason why there was such an urgency to bring it in in the first place. So when there was a pause put on, um, you know, notices to quit and evictions, um, like there was no doubt that it was going to go up. That, that that number was only going to be added to. But I think not having specifics and then walking into something like this when you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, ensuring that we have enough emergency accommodation, that there's, you know... Um, schemes were schemes in, place. in place. and all the rest. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're walking in blind to that, that's a bit of a concern. Yeah, Billy Callagher, <clears throat> you've been around a long time. You know politics. It doesn't look good. And you must see now in reflection that the government weren't as prepared as they should have been, that they do seem to have rushed into this decision. Well, I mean, they didn't rush into the original decision, which was to bring in an eviction ban um, because of the numbers of people that were uh, after getting a notice to quit uh, in advance of the winter. And it was always stated that it was a winter ev eviction ban uh, moratorium. That's what it was. It was always temporary in nature. Um, obviously, governments, when they're making decisions or ministers, should have all the information available to them. But everybody that, you know, uh, was, was looking at this, the very minute the eviction ban was put in place, when it would be unwound, there would be an awful lot more people would be evicted or would receive a notice to quit. Uh, that Even was more reason to be prepared, to be well, ready. No, no, but the, the preparation is not... The preparation is that we just simply do not and have not the capacity or didn't build enough and put enough supports into local authorities for the emergency aspect mm. of the number of people that may find themselves uh, moving out of their homes. And that is the issue here. But, like... There is still, you accept there was a mistake. There is still there. protections available to people from the from. There's obligations on landlords. They can't just throw people out. Uh, and local authorities and other housing agencies now have an absolute obligation to ensure that the most vulnerable uh, can find some emergency accommodation very quickly. Um, Harry Brown, there has been this row, I suppose, this week between uh, Leo Vradker and Peter McVeary about whose decision it was uh, within government to end the moratorium, that yeah. Dara O'Brien didn't want it and Leo Vradker actually did, that he overruled him. This is something that Leo Vradker has now completely denied, uh, said there's no evidence for it, and Peter McVeary has, has <clears throat> backed down. But if you're arguing with Peter McVeary on housing, 
and you're turning that into an argument. Are you losing the political battle here? Yeah, I mean, earlier in the week, we had the government getting upset because actually the evictions today aren't as bad as the famine. And now later in the week, we've got to the government. This was a very arguing. famous uh, spice bag <laughs> the spice artwork bag that artwork. generated quite a lot of heat in this program one in night this week. In this very week. room. It's exciting <laughs> to be here. But the. the uh, Absolutely, that you don't want to be arguing with Peter McFerry. Look, I teach a course on how journalists should use statistics, and the government has uh, failed that course already this week. Even before today, when we found out that they didn't have enough data to make the decision that they were making, they were confusing causation and correlation. They were saying because the homeless numbers were rising anyway, there was no grounds to continue the eviction ban. It really has been, it's been a mess. And as you say, if you're arguing with Peter McFerry, even if Peter McFerry was wrong, on a point of detail. If you're arguing with Peter McVeary on housing, you are definitely losing. Uh, do you think this has been part of a distraction technique a bit this week? Now, I think Leo Varadkar has a right to defend himself. Mm -hmm. If somebody makes a charge against you, you say, no, that is absolutely not true. He should be allowed to do that. But as a part of a wider distraction, because we have seen other um, TDs, backbenchers, respond to Peter McVeary's um, comments online. Yeah, like it's, I think this eviction ban from day one just hasn't been handled appropriately at all by the government. I think, you know, when you, you don't have enough data on the table, when, you know, you're, you're, don't have the preparation. I think that the question, and it's a right one to ask, is, is what did they have to make this decision? And it's interesting to point out that in this argument, all the ministers have come out in a sort of collective cabinet decision-making, which is always, you know, when you hear that not, that line being tied out, it's, it's very much like, you That's know... It's not to be believed, does it? <laughs> well, it's, it's, they if, were fighting. They were if, definitely yeah, fighting. Yeah, if one minister yeah. is in the firing line, you better believe he's going to make sure that everybody is in the firing line. And, and they don't want... They want the whole heat of this argument to be spread across all ministers, and they don't want just one minister taking the and heat look, on it. what the people can see is that they've made a decision that suits landlords, and that's the political end of the day. All right, look, I want to move on to um, another uh, issue that was announced today that uh, Ireland is to hold a four-day public forum on the state's foreign and security policy, including the country's neutrality. It has been prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, let's discuss this in more detail. Do you understand the reasoning behind setting up this forum, Harry Brown? I think I do. Uh, I mean, we've seen that uh, other countries in Europe that have had a traditional policy of neutrality have moved away from it now. But Ireland is different. I mean, we've just had this discussion about how our colonial heritage is really still alive. It was alive in this studio in the last few days, that in that viral moment. We uh, have this history. We have and continuing sympathies. I mean, Ireland sympathies with oppressed and racialized people in the anti-apartheid movement in the 80s and the Palestinian solidarity movement today, our activities in the UN over generations. We have a very deep history. The first Irish Neutrality League it wasn't de Valera in the Second World War. It was James Connolly, Constance Markovich, Sean T. Kelly, later president of Ireland at the start of the First World War. And Ireland's, that same group of people essentially are the, the, the people who gave rise to the rebellion that began this state and resistance to war, resistance to conscription was part of that as well. But are we more vulnerable now than we ever were? Has the invasion of Ukraine... But that doesn't change Ireland's like position. And what, one thing we know from more recent history as well is that it's really important important that there are neutral, honest brokers that will help to bring belligerents to the table, as what happened here 25 years ago for the Good Friday Agreement. So why we, do you think the government has decided, the Taunish has decided to hold this forum? Where's the motivation coming from? 
Why do they think now is right? And I'll ask you in a moment, Billy. Well, I think that Fine Gael have had a, a fairly long held uh, desire to kind of shake, rattle and roll the Irish people on Irish neutrality. And they clearly see this as an opportunity to do that. And so it, it's, not, it's not surprising at all, but I hope that there really is a full discussion because I think the Irish people have made it very clear that they absolutely support neutrality and they support it not just on the narrow little grounds that the government says we are still maintaining our military neutrality here. They support it in a much fuller sense. How do you know that they definitely support? Like, what test has been put to the Irish people? Well, there's also a recent poll that said that the Irish people, the Irish people are very sympathetic with Ukrainian people now. There's no question about that with Ukrainian refugees. So is it a good idea to discuss the issue? But the Ukrainian but there was also a poll recently that showed that the Irish people don't want to give military aid to Ukraine. Even at this difficult time, the Irish people know the difference between um, fighting for peace and fighting for war. Yeah, I think it, it's a fair point to make, I think, Billy. There was that um, research, that poll carried out last year. I think it was 66% of people in Ireland, two-thirds of the population, saying that they were happy with our neutrality. They want the status <coughs> quo uh, to remain. I think there was another piece yeah. of um, polling done for the journal. 50% of people still even want the triple lock system when it comes to sending our troops abroad. There doesn't seem to be this huge appetite to have this big debate on neutrality if the polling is to be believed, and yet the governments have been pushing this. Why? I don't see anything wrong with a democracy that would actually have a debate. I mean, that's the essence of democracy, is that we would have debates. And, I mean, governments sometimes just have has to put that out there. So there is discussions around the issue. I can remember... And we have seen Finland I join NATO and remember, absolutely move their position. I can remember many times when the public had a, a view and then we had a debate as a society politically. I can remember in the context of the Eighth Amendment, where we went from one uh, position to another position over a generation of people. So having debates and discussions about issues that are fundamental to us as a people are critically important, and we should have them regularly and frequently and discuss them so we're comfortable uh, as a people. But neutrality and getting involved are two different things completely. Like, Ukraine has been invaded. We politically support it. We financially support it. Um, the chance of Ireland being invaded are slim enough. But supposing Estonia is invaded, a friend of ours in the European Union, one that stands up for exact same values, we should, as a people, do nothing. Do nothing, is it? Well, what do you think we should do in that instance? Well, if the European Union is under attack, we should certainly come to their assistance. We may not or cannot put troops to But what to, does that mean? Because, because we see with Ukraine we are coming to their assistance. Because some people in Ireland are saying that we shouldn't even give financial support to Ukraine. Like, we have people on the left in this, but do in you this feel, country... But do you feel, Billy Keller, at this point, that we need to go beyond that in Ireland? That we need to have a different attitude to our military neutrality? That well, it is Well, look, there's a big, there's a big the step between Ireland. putting Irish troops in the field and supporting, through financial uh, necessity, you know, the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia. You know, we're not necessarily talking about giving troops, but at the moment, we can't purchase equipment for the Ukrainians to fight off an aggressor who is pillaging their right. country at the moment. Uh, Harry, I want to let you respond to that. Well, look, the, it is true that being in the European Union brings us a lot closer to being part of a military alliance. There's no question about that. And the... Uh, uh, in effect, no, no, no. Oh, look, come on. You know that Joseph Burrell, just in the last few days in the European Parliament, was saying, yes, you know, NATO, EU, it's kind of the same thing, really. He says out loud the things that you guys don't like no, to no, say, say, but you know no, that but it's I think, true. But, I mean, the bottom line here, Harry, is that the vast majority of the countries that are in the European Union are in NATO, and as late as recently, 
two more decided that they would join NATO. Now, Finland joined NATO that has been, uh, for, for a long period of time, neutral. Sweden has been neutral for 200 years and yeah. is making an application. Should yeah. we join Why? NATO, Billy Keller? What's your opinion? I, yes I or no? I'm I don't confused. believe we should join NATO, personally. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't commit resources uh, to countries when they're under attack. Um, you know, we don't have to commit Harry, do you think we'll ever change our position in this country? I don't think the Irish people want to see us change our position. It has to be said, I have every sympathy for the people in Finland and Sweden who are making this change. But it does amount to an escalation in a situation that needs de-escalation. It only yeah, amounts very... to an escalation if the Russians invade them. All right, very quickly, Christina, this is happening in June, isn't it, over four days? Yeah, it's going to be, I think, a very heated discussion, no doubt. And I think the opposition pointed to why we're not having a citizens' assembly on this, why a new forum has been set up to this. So I think you'll see a lot more debate about why this mechanism has been chosen. OK, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Christina and Billy are going to be staying here with me. Thanks to Harry for joining us for that discussion. And after the break, should... Good Friday, it's in two days' time. Are you working, are you not? Should it be declared a full public holiday? Stay with us, we'll debate. You're very welcome back. Christina and Billy are still here with me. And we're also joined by Caroline Reedy from the Hitch or Suite to talk about the Labour Party's call for Good Friday to be made a public holiday for all workers. Now, some companies already grant the day as a bonus day to their workers, but others do not. So, Christina, this is a public holiday. If you're in the public sector, you're off. It's a day's annual leave this Friday. If you're in the private sector, depends on the company. Yeah, this is it. And uh, it's an interesting suggestion, I think, by the Labour Party. They've been putting out some interesting ideas of late. And uh, no doubt that one's about the public holiday or day off work certainly gets traction. And look, there is an argument for it in terms of Europe. When you compare Ireland, you know, we do have, I think, relatively known, low number of uh, public holidays. A number of other European countries have significantly higher. Um, and we did get, you know, St. Bridget's Day this year. So... Look, any extra day off for, for a worker would be very welcome, but obviously businesses on the flip side of that, you know, they're looking at the, the, the end of month figures and... And saying this, this costs. Yeah. yeah, look, it's not going to come as any great surprise, Caroline, that, you know, people who aren't running their own business looked at this and thought, absolutely, Labour Party never agreed with you. More great idea. Do you agree it is a good idea? I think we're all... We'd all be delighted if we all got a four-day week every week. Um, but I think there's a lot of additional costs that have come in uh, recently for business owners. We've got statutory sick pay, which just came in in January. We've got the additional public holiday, St. Bridget's Day. Obviously, Good Friday at the minute is a bank holiday, not a public holiday. So it's an additional cost, let's be honest. And I think all those additional costs with minimum wage, with pay increases, etc., energy costs... It's just an additional cost for businesses. And for a lot of people, what they do instead is people get their quota of holidays and rather than being allocated to Good Friday, etc., people have the choice to take it when they want. And a lot of employers provide more than the statutory 20 days holidays anyway. Um, I suppose one of the real difficulties for people, and does cause tension sometimes, is the idea that if you're a public sector worker, you're you're guaranteed it, it is a holiday, and if you're a private sector worker, you're not. Is it fair to have that disparity between public and private sector workers? I think there's always differences in terms of benefits, terms and conditions, etc., with jobs now. For a lot of employees now, they want their basic pay to be as high as possible. That's their biggest priority. It's all about how much am I actually taking home, much more than what are, what are the additional days I might get 
it's all about like pay increases, rate to pay, etc. Because that's what impacts the mortgage. That's what impacts the cost of living, I suppose. So that's what we're seeing. People are more interested in those type of things. But a lot of employers now have to give healthcare, pensions, etc. But it's all adding to the cost. And I suppose the cost of doing business now is increasing and the cost of wages is one of those additional costs that especially small businesses need to monitor closely. But I suppose given the fact that there is such buoyancy within the jobs market now, and we've heard time and time again from so many industries, particularly you know the services sector, for example, how difficult it is to keep staff, to secure staff, that they're going to have to consider offering extra bonuses like this. Absolutely. I think people are, they're focused on things like healthcare, um, a lot of uh, retail, hospitality, etc. Never before had things like pensions or healthcare, and they're absolutely looking at doing uh, those kind of incentives. Mm. I think a public holiday isn't going to make all the difference to most workers. We'd all welcome it overall, but I think we need to identify, if you're saying you'd like to introduce something like this, as the Labour Party have, you need to think about who's going to pay for it. And I think it's the consultation around, is this the best uh, option in terms of those kind of benefits? Uh, is it a priority, you know, if you have somebody coming in and saying, um, I'm looking for a job in X, Y and Z, or a company comes to you and says, I need you to find somebody to fill this role. Is it a question that prospective employees ask? You know? I think most people now, they're interested in flexibility being number one. They have the, if there's the option to work remotely or hybrid, etc., that's really, really big high priority for jobs that they can do that in. Obviously, not all jobs can. And the next most important thing after that is, what is my take-home pay? How much am I going to be actually earning? Because flexibility and earning power are the two big priorities. But you're 100% right, Kira. People are looking at retaining and attracting people. And all those bargaining tools, a lot of people leave a job to be able to use that as a bargaining tool in the next job to get better incentives and pay. So... We're all about retention now. Uh, Billy Keller, are you off in your hollybops this Friday? Uh, not going anywhere in particular. I mean, the Parliament isn't sitting this week. Actually, it's called a Green Week, so we're, I'm allowed to be in Ireland all this week. Uh, so are, so you, are you on annual leave on Friday as it stands? No, I'm not. As a no, I, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, like, I just think we have to be careful. I mean, you know, flexibility is really the, what's required in the workforce um, to allow people to have flexibility around family time, uh, childcare, uh, remote working, hybrid working. Uh, a public holiday, if it's made available to everybody, then it's, it's, it, it, it's not a bargaining chip for either the employee or the employer, let's be honest. But so I, I think, you know, we, we'd want to be just conscious that all these things put added pressure on an economy uh, and then yeah. you start slipping into anti-competitiveness and pressure start building in small businesses. All these public holidays cost money. Yeah, but just very quickly, the EU average is 12 days. The Irish number is 10. So we are below the EU average. Yes, we are, but in terms of economic growth and everything else, we're well above the EU average. So we have to, you know, temper our language in terms of making sure that we have balance in all of these things. All right, so you're not going to support the Labour Party in that proposal. But anyhow, uh, that is it from us this evening. My thanks to Christina, to Billy and to Caroline for coming in to us from the HR suite and to all of our guests tonight, but from the late team here. Good night, have a lovely Easter and do take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.